Hey, welcome to episode four of Not a Podcast, the Not Operator Podcast. I'm Ryan, and I'm joined by Michael. Hello. And Kilroy. Hello. Uh, so today we'll be talking about, as usual, gaming, tech, and guns. Uh, in the gaming category, we'll be talking about Pokemon Go. Uh, in tech, we'll be talking about self-driving cars and smartwatches. And in the gun category, we're going to be talking about uh, the development of the Air 15 and the M16, and, uh, you know, if you had to choose just one gun, sort of uh, discuss, you know, reasons why you would choose one in particular. So uh, we'll kick things off with gaming. And Michael, I'll let you go ahead. Thanks, Ryan. So my topic that I chose for this week, I don't think there could be really anything else that we could be talking about other than Pokemon Go. The, the craze that is Pokemon Go. Have, uh, have either of you guys had a chance to play it or look into it yet? I've, uh, I've seen people I've play it. St- I've been steadily watching my shares of Nintendo go up. <laughs> <laughs> One of the few people in the world that actually had Nintendo stock, uh, Kilroy. <laughs> and hey, I bought it after the CEO died, and it was a good move. Yeah, I, I guess. What was the price at at that time? It was only like twenty bucks. We're up to like twenty seven right now. Okay, that's, that's good. Decent, solid return. You should sell before the whole app collapses. But we'll get there. Uh, <laughs> So I downloaded it when it first came out. Uh, I just wanted to check it out. I used to be a huge Pokemon fan growing up. I had you know, collected the cards, got all the Game Boy games, um, all, literally all of them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, get the link cable to trade with your friends. Uh, I wanted to be the very best. And like no one ever like, was. Like no one ever was. Yeah, Thank okay. You. I was waiting for someone to finish <laughs> that for me. Uh, you seem to have failed your real test, though. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Wait, why? Did you catch them all? Oh, yeah. All, all of them, them, all of them? No. Even Mew? There's too many now. No, no, no. Come no, on. There's 151. Don't... Yeah, oh yeah, exactly. They're all... The rest are just imaginary. Yeah. The first 151 are real. Speaking of them being real, Pokemon Go came out. <laughs> and what a insane sort of, like, adventure this thing has been, right? I'm honestly shocked that there is as much interest as there is. Because everyone liked Pokemon. You know, no one, you know... I, okay, some people weren't into it, but but as kids, everyone was into it. Kids now are still into right, it. It's a part. '90s thing, yeah. But the amount of people who would say, "I'm gonna get this app on my phone," it's like, it's crazy. And not just people on their phone; like people are out and about and walking around playing this thing That's for the, the first part, time right? ever. Yeah. <laughs> since when do people go outside for video games? I mean, honestly, well, literally never. Literally I can say never. that. A majority of the lower listed at the DLI have Pokemon Go on their phones, and it's actually getting really annoying. So if you look out of your window, you just see people wandering around aimlessly, like, looking at their phones. You're not technically allowed to check your phone while you're in uniform and walking, so people, <laughs> not you'll, see a bunch of people you'll see a bunch of people standing around outside, and then walking, and then looking at their phones, and walking, and then stopping. <laughs> That's awesome. It's like they can't walk and, and look at their phone at the same time. It's I not mean, like they can't. They're prevented they're from that. Literally, they're not allowed to. Literally, allowed to. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so, I'll give you a quick background on the game for those who don't know. Uh, basically, it's an uh, augmented reality game, which means it kind of just overlays your camera's phone uh, images. Phone's camera. Yes, thank you. <laughs> it's late. Your phone's camera over what you're currently seeing and layers in images of Pokemon. Like, they're kind of there in the real world. So, if I hold up my phone right now in this room and point it at Ryan's desk and there's a Pokemon there, I can throw a Pokeball at it and capture it, add to my collection and train them and raise them and eventually fight at a Pokemon gym and go to various locations that give you Pokemon items and that's about it. Do you do you battle with other people? So you can't, like, I, if you had it and I had it, I can't just sit here and battle you directly. Uh, the way that I can battle somebody else based on my limited interaction with the game, uh, you go to a Pokemon gym, which is at a location of interest, I think, um, one was close to my work. It was like at a restaurant at the bottom of the building where I work, and that was a Pokemon gym. And you claim the gym for yourself by taking it over, by beating the people that currently are in charge Just put of your it. ball sack on the table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would clean everyone out, I guess, right? Uh, <laughs> this is my Valley tactics. This is Some mine. people seem to have not understood this battling mechanic and have been robbing people at gunpoint using Pokemon yes, Go. Yes, I was going to get into that a little bit too, but like, it, it's kind of crazy what you're hearing about like all these like people like... Getting people outside is like causing all these different things, right? So first of them, first of them was what Kilroy was saying about how people are getting mugged. They're using the app, right? So I think what they were doing is they went to those one of those gyms or Pokestop locations where they knew people would go to, and then once they see people looking at their phones, not paying attention, they just go up to them and armed robbery. So it's kind of <laughs> an easy way to get someone to a secluded location and, and rub, uh, rob them. Uh, they, those guys got arrested, which is good, I guess. Uh, another thing that happened is 
people found a dead body. I think. Yeah, I heard that that someone found one in a river. That's an intense form of geocaching. Yeah, Yeah, exactly, more or less. Uh, But it's crazy, like that. I'm surprised that it's doing so well, right? First off, I I mean, I played the game a little bit. It's fun. It, it, I guess, it appeals to the nostalgia that I was saying before. It's all '90s kids, right? So it's kind of like you're you're getting back into that Pokemon swing, you know. Remember what it's like to play Pokemon Red or Blue for the first time. Right. Uh, but other than that, other than what I mentioned, I mean, I, I didn't play the game for long. It's possible there's more to it, but there, there really isn't much more than I mentioned. Yeah, from what I've seen, it, it literally is walk to this place, you know, grab the Pokemon, and that's it. And then you go to the gyms, I guess, and battle people. But otherwise, yeah. you, you just walk around. All the people that I've seen are walking around on their phone like, there's a Pokemon over there. There's a Pokemon over there. There's yeah. a Pokemon over there. Yeah, your phone will give you like a notification of like what Pokemon are nearby. And then uh, it kind of give you an indicator of like how many, how far away it is. So like you'll have like a, a one step below it or two step below it or three step below it. Three steps being farthest away, obviously. So you kind of just walk around until your phone vibrates. And that means there's a Pokemon there. And then you click on the Pokemon that shows up on your phone. Uh, and then you can throw Pokeballs at it to try to catch it and add it to your collection. So what's the, the model for them to make money on this? I mean, it's a free game, right? Yeah, that's an important distinction to make, too. I guess that's why so many people are playing it, most likely, because it's free to play. It's literally all the, the only barrier to entry you need is just having a phone and a battery like that lasts longer than like <laughs> yeah. half an hour. Here it's been draining battery life yeah. like crazy. Uh, there are... Uh, like items you can purchase. to You can buy more Pokeballs. You can buy revives. You can buy... Uh, like you can lure Pokemon to certain areas, like incense or something like that. So you can buy those items to, you know, enhance your game. So it's basically they they sell you consumables, sort of like any other any mobile other, game. Yeah, exactly. I, from my experience, again, I didn't play it too far. It didn't seem like pay to win. It seemed like there was a lot of like uh, opportunity to get more Pokeballs. I, I never had the issue of running out of Pokeballs where I needed to pay money to get it. So that's, that's good. That's, that's good. Pay to win is you know like a reprehensible model exactly. in my mind. So it's, I'm glad they didn't go that route. Yeah, uh, compared to, you know, other gaming, I think mobile gaming has a huge stigma, rightfully so, because it's all, you know, pay to win, or a lot of it, more, yeah. more or less, so you can just spend money if you wanted to, and beat everyone else based on that, which I guess you probably could do if you buy all items here, but I don't think that most of the people, uh, from what I've seen, are actually doing that. I'm actually honestly waiting for the A, the update that'll bring in, like, battle your friends, and then I'm going to dump my stock at that point, because yeah. I'm sure it'll rock it again. Um, and B, I'm waiting for the VR hookup where you can connect your Pokemon Go into any old console or PC or whatever and be able to play Pokemon Stadium in VR be standing behind your Pokemon yelling at them. That'd be cool. Well, this is a perfect opportunity, you know, Google Glass, and I'm going to talk about wearables a little bit later, but, you know, something like Google Glass would be a a much better model than people, like, staring at their phones, looking at the ground, walking around. That's how you end up falling into fountains and stuff. Yeah, but the alternative... I guess the counterpoint to that is it's Google Glass, right? How many people are going to be buying that? Well, everyone, everyone, has a, everyone has a cell phone, right? By now, yeah. I mean, Google Glass is effectively a failed product at this point. I just mean, conceptually speaking, some sort of augmented reality is much better right. in wearable form than something. You, well, Google you can walk around Google Cardboard on your face. Yeah, I can see people walking around with that. Let me know when you see people head. doing that, uh, Kilroy. <laughs> I, but, uh, I seem to be the only one here at the DLI that has ever heard of Google Cardboard, so it's going to be a long wait. Us. Well, no. uh, so, this part you mentioned how like a future update might bring like battling your friends. I don't know if that's been announced yet. Hopefully, if they were smart, the company that made the game would actually incorporate that. I think they've announced that the next update is going to involve uh, include trading, so you can trade Pokemon with your friends. And who knows how long it's going to be, right? The, the big question is, does this game have staying power? Is it really going to be a huge phenomenon that it seems to be? Is it going to last long? Is it going to fizzle out because of, like, people are going to realize that there's no depth to the game? Like, what's what more is there to do? So my question also is, you know, this is not a Nintendo-produced game, right? It's a it's a third-party company that exactly it's called Niantic, it. I believe, something along those lines. Uh, they've they've done mobile game before. I think even like augmented reality game before. I think the the key distinction here and the reason why it's successful is because they have the license of Pokemon from Nintendo. Right. If they made up some other, I don't know. Well. That was their previous game. They made Ingress. That was the yeah, game right. that they had, and they uh, were actually working with Google to do augmented reality stuff with that game. And, and how did that go? It was a kind of a cult hit, honestly. It was played by like, quite a number of people, had a small fan base, but it doesn't have like the major following it does here. Gotcha. Right. I mean, Pokemon, is, as a franchise, is massive and has a ton of name recognition. That's the key, right? And I, I... 
Ryan and I were discussing this before and thought it'd be a great conversation point to bring up during this podcast is that look at what this is doing, right? Nintendo over the last couple of years has just like significantly died as a hardware like the maker, right? The right. Wii U. Look They're at that. failing a hundred percent on the hardware front. The Wii was good, right? But the, just after that initial chunk, it I just don't even think down. it was good. It's their sold, their sold sales like were good. Their time. sales were good initially, but they had a failed model. And I just want to touch on it briefly. Yeah. Nintendo thought, "Hey, we've got this untapped market of casual users. Let's sell a profitable console." You know, as at the time, PlayStation or Sony and and Microsoft were selling Xbox and PlayStation at a loss in terms of hardware thinking. We're going to make this up in software sales. Nintendo said, let's make a a console that's profitable on the hardware, sell it to, you know, way more people than either of these other two companies can sell to. And look at our sales figures. We're doing great. Okay. Now that we've fully saturated our market, let's go out there and sell some software. And guess what? The people in nursing homes and the children that are six years old (laughs) don't want the Wii for anything other than like Wii Sports and like maybe Wii Fit at best. Uh, I remember seeing a figure at one point that said the average Wii owner uh, has, an, on average, like 1.2 games cool. for the Wii, including Wii Sports. The, the average PlayStation owner has seven games, and the average wow. Xbox 360 owner has nine games. Wow. So, yeah, I think Nintendo thought short-term, not long-term, and it killed them overall, and they came out with the Wii U and said, hey, we had this Wii gimmick, we're going to create a new gimmick. And we're going to, you know, sell to this crowd. And all these people, for the same reason they're not buying games, they go, why do I need a new console? My Wii well, Bowling works just fine. Not just that. They saw it and saw and said, are you sure this is a new console, not just an addition to my Wii? Yeah, that was the <laughs> other thing. It was like when you add the U to it and it looks basically the same and you're promoting this gamepad, they literally think it's an extra addition to their existing Wii. Yeah. And in doing so, they said, we're too big to care about third-party publishers, so we don't care if developers are making game for the games for the Wii, because we can publish our own software. That's and been Nintendo's logic, right? So this will help further my next point, right? So what are the biggest games then that Nintendo has? That Super sold? Smash. Okay. Uh, Zelda. Games. Okay. And I don't know. Every so often they come out with a Mario game, but I don't remember exactly. the last one that oh, was super well. So the point that super betrayal of the Metroid franchise that everybody hates. Oh yeah, there was that. Okay. Did that, did that sell well? That's, yeah. I honestly exactly. don't know. Yeah, I, don't, I don't think it did that well. Anyways, the point I'm trying to make is that the reason those biggest selling games that Nintendo has are the ones that includes their their key characters, right? But if they want to, you know, continue to be profitable, look at what happened with Pokemon Go. They licensed out Pokemon, right? Which is, virtually what I know, probably the first time they've done that. Yeah, I don't know of any time Nintendo is licensed out a major franchise like that exactly. and, and to look, sell as a game. Yeah, and, and look how crazy successful it's becoming, right? Right. Like, I'd be curious to know what their numbers, not on adoption are, because I know that those are exceptionally high, but in terms of how much money is coming in. Oh. Yeah, who knows? I mean, just gotta be, imagine based on sheer volume, there have to be at least some people that are paying, right? Right. Now, if only yeah. they hadn't killed that fan-based MMO for Pokemon. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. Well, Nintendo has a history of doing their best to alienate their, not just customers, but their fans. You know, YouTube creators that want to show off Nintendo games get cease and desists. And they came out with that, like, you know, program to share profits or whatever, where Nintendo will take at least a 60% cut of any profits made if you utilize one of their games in a video. And it has to be an approved list. And, of course, the most popular games aren't even on that list, so you can't be... Or like, like Super Smash some guy who was like, I'm going to have a Super Smash Land party. He's like, you can't use our images there. Yeah, and it's like, um, okay, I guess I won't play your games then. Thanks, guys. Good uh, You can't relations. even, like, make rip-off characters who already have it. Like, make, like, a joke of Mario and you got Wario, right? You got to, like... Yeah, they're coming up with their... Uh, their their Chinese, Chinese knockoffs are yeah. already licensed, but, you exactly. know, they're already Luigi, right? copyrighted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Congrats, you uh, yes. tried. So, I guess my my biggest like positive or like the, the thing that I see the best out of Pokemon Go, my key takeaway from all of this, is that hopefully Nintendo realizes that look what they can do if they just you know license out their stuff a little bit. I understand them wanting to keep control because they don't want to. I don't know. They like having complete control. They don't want to Pokemon the VR porn. <laughs> see, but but so I agree with you in that respect. But this is an interesting case because it's not that Nintendo's creating software. For another system. It'd be one thing if it was in-house developed um, for mobile and they go, this is published by Nintendo 
uh, it's on mobile, go for it. Then I would consider that like, you know, a pretty significant shift and sort of what I'm going to get into in a second. This was going one step further and saying, we're not even going to bother with the development of this. We're going to give it to some other developer. Here's our IP. Go, go for it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's in the name. Um, but what I'm thinking is, and I've been saying this for years, that Nintendo should really switch to not necessarily a licensing model like that, because then you do run the risk of, you know, watering down your IP or, you know, not getting the quality that, that it deserves. But if you're a software publisher, you know, and you want to make Super Smash, right? Publish it on Xbox. You'll have crazy sales yeah. and you can polish the game to your heart's content. You know, when you're a software developer, I mean, it's not like they have money rolling in from their hardware division now. Yeah. Where's the money coming from? Uh, the only Wii U's that sold, oh, yes. including my own, are Super Smash Machines. That is literally the only reason I bought one. I have two games for it because one of them came with the Wii U and the other one is Super Smash. Uh, I have no interest, really, in buying any other games. I don't care. But, you know, if they wanted to be a third-party publisher, they could use their IP and sell it to everybody instead of just a hardcore fan base that's willing to pay for the console in order to play the game. Yeah. The, it, I guess the, the... It would be that much closer to a VR Legend of Zelda. <laughs> the, that would be sweet. The counter to all that is, I mean, look at all the companies that they have, the internal companies that they have. Star Fox, the new Star Fox game that came out, right? Oh, the IPs? Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, but they're the ones that they're internally developing, right? Star Fox. Was considered garbage. Right. And then Legend of Zelda, this game's been in development for how long? Right. Since the yeah, last I mean, Legend of Zelda. Well, that's because Nintendo just ran out of ideas. Like, their IP is valuable, and they, they have the capacity to make good games, but they haven't had a new idea since the Wii, and even that was a mediocre, sort of short-sighted choice. Right. Yeah, so I'm just saying, even if they do just focus on software, I don't think that would be enough to keep them going. I think that I think it'd be more successful in their current tactic, oh, just totally. because they have a much wider audience. If they could focus and more on that, then yeah, totally. the I, I, overhead in developing a hardware platform is enormous, and they they still have the the onus on them to develop these games. The only difference is they have a much smaller market, so the development resources are exactly the same now as they would be. If they were exclusively a third-party software developer, the difference is they wouldn't have the hardware overhead and they'd be able to sell their games to, what, 10 times the amount of people? Or if they want to, you know, release to PC, it would be off the charts. I mean, they're, I feel like it's a missed opportunity, but Nintendo has a history of, you know, head in the sand, we don't yeah. care about what makes sense, we're going to do our own weird thing. Yeah, which circles back to what I'm saying, is like, I hope they, learn, they take this opportunity to learn from it, right? I hope they, they're like, okay... We have something here. I mean, they should have known this already. We, we have something here, but what can we do to you know keep these things going? What can we do to make ourselves profitable based on this type of model? And we'll see, hopefully, if if they learn and then only benefit gamers as a whole. Right. Well. I, I really hope they take it to heart. Only time will tell. I guess we'll, we'll see more with what happens with the NX. We haven't really heard too much about that yet. Yeah, I heard some patents came out, but I'm really... Uh, and, you know, to me, it'll be like, again, a Super Smash machine. If they announce Super Smash with it, that's the only reason I have any interest in an X, NX release. Because otherwise, I have no reason whatsoever to care. Well, they have of course, no it'll have a Super Smash on it. What's that? Of course, they'll have a Super Smash on it. It's the only thing that makes them money anymore. <laughs> Seriously. That's the whole argument that I'm trying to make. Yeah, yeah. They, they really need to branch out here. Well, so. I feel like that's also pushed back from, like... Nintendo Japan, where all the decisions come from, like Nintendo of America is probably like, hey, we could probably do something, and then Nintendo of Japan just goes, let's not. Yeah, I feel like they're a little short-sighted as well, because they tend to focus a lot on the domestic market, and as far as I know, Nintendo still sells relatively well in Japan, but you'd think as an international company, they'd look to their foreign markets, you know, it's not like Microsoft ignores the fact that they're getting killed in Europe and South America. That's actually very distinctive of just the Japanese market in general, and, like, that stems out of their Kiritsu and fucking Zaibatsu uh, structures. I don't know what that means. <laughs> you don't? Like, the, <laughs> the monolithic and, like, when they control both horizontal and vertical dis uh, distinctions in the economy. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so Japanese media has that distinction as well, where Nintendo produces not only video games, but they probably have light novels and me like media and anime and whatever going on back in Japan that we never hear about, and they want as as tight of media control as possible. In much the same way, like 
in Deus Ex Human Revolution, for example, they wanted to add a goofy little fake Final Fantasy poster uh, via Square Enix since they were already working for them. They actually had to go get permission from the Final Fantasy section of the company Mm -hmm. in Japan and ask them permission, like, hey, we want to make up a fake Final Fantasy poster. And like, no, no, don't make up your own. We'll make one for you and we'll put it in the game. Okay. Yeah. Japan's (laughs) really big about control. So in that case, I mean, keep it controlled in the domestic market. Keep releasing a product, you know, in Japan. But... As a as a business decision, it makes no sense. They they want that monolithic control across international, just so it's like consistently wherever you go, Nintendo is Nintendo. I guess so, but, but from a just purely financial Japanese perspective, approach. it just makes no sense whatsoever. Anyway, so so I'm going to use our our discussion on Pokemon Go to to move into the tech topic because um, you know I was going to talk about uh, self driving cars. I'll get to that afterwards. This sort of ties into wearables, you know, and uh, um, the augmented reality scape. So I talked a little bit about Google Glass, you know, in the discussion of it'd be great to be able to to look through your glasses and see Pokemon uh, and, you know, all sorts of stuff. Um, Are you sure you're not just on drugs? <laughs> yeah, I guess you could do that now with drugs. Um, but... Uh, it seems to be sort of dead end. I saw something about a patent for a, a business-oriented Google Glass, but it seems like the whole wearables concept as far as... Can you excel in my glasses? Um, yeah, augmented vision oh is dead, which is strange to me because I know people are worried about privacy, but... It's not it even dead. Like useful. If you remember that one year we were at CES, there was that one company that had a Google Glass-like thing for augmented reality, and they were actually saying that they were getting sales for it inside right, of the industrial not, sector. It's not, you know, huge in the consumer market yet. It's it's not at all yeah. in the consumer market. It basically really. is only limited to like industrial and enterprise setups, like where they need it sparingly. Right. So my question is, why hasn't it moved forward? Is it really the privacy concerns? Because I always felt those were a little ridiculous, considering everyone has a phone on them all right. the time, and if someone really wants to film, you know, discreetly, it's not that hard. Like. Who cares if you're wearing Google Glass or not? I, I didn't really understand why people were so upset by it. I feel like it's just another one of those devices that are kind of cool to have and you feel like you're in some cyberpunk movie for about the first 20 minutes you're wearing it. Then suddenly you're like, why am I wearing this? Like an Apple Watch? Okay, so that's exactly what I was going to say is smartwatches, at least with Google Glass or something similar to that, I understand the point. Smartwatches are one of the dumbest devices. They feel like the 3D TVs of mobile because (laughs) everyone's like what they're the host 2010 pager (laughs) you're right i mean think about what the smartwatch is designed to do the the actual function right you think about your phone you have all these sorts of functions on your phone you think about google glass you say what does it provide me okay provides a heads-up display what does a smartwatch provide you it provides you the ability to occasionally not take out your phone and check it instead of reaching into your pocket and seeing your text message, you can look at your wrist and see part of a text message. And if you want to reply, you can sort of reply from there. If you want to reply for real, you got to check your phone. If you get an email, you can glance at, you know, maybe the subject line on your watch. And then you have to go to your phone. So so let's ca- say like a best case scenario, it reduces the number of times you have to pull your phone out of your pocket about 50%. It can also and the rest of the time, it's fairly inaccurate uh, stat- status monitor for your vitals. Okay, yeah, but you can get a and, Fitbit for that. And they shoot out lasers, don't they? Lasers? Oh, yeah, you wish. Had to. James Bond, yeah. But, but I mean, really, it's it's a phone surrogate that doesn't even do a good job. It's like a, a mini phone that provides no added functionality whatsoever. I guess it has some of those vital function monitors. But, again, you could get any sort of activity monitor for that. You don't need a smartwatch for it. Uh, again, what. like this idea that I've been telling you, we should revert back to, like, Sam Fisher tier where you just have the fucking PDA on your wrist. Well, at least it would make more sense because then you're <laughs> carrying, you know, instead of having two devices that you have to charge overnight and they each cost 400 plus dollars, you just have one and it sticks on your wrist instead of in your pocket. The main reason why people have these wearables, I'll tell you why. It makes you look cool. No, it doesn't though. That's, the, well, I, that's, that's what they think, right? That's, what that's, they why, think. that's why they buy it. Absolutely. I'm better than you because I have this smartwatch. Which is a little ridiculous because I feel like a regular watch does, I mean... The functionality that it provides you, which is quick checks, except the difference is the battery won't die after 24 hours. 
You don't have to plug it in next to your phone every night. You don't have to deal with Bluetooth connectivity issues. And you're just not getting anything. Like, it doesn't do anything for you. And guess what? There's a new model next year, and it's also $400. <laughs> I understand upgrading a phone. I get it. A smartwatch does not provide me with enough functionality to justify the initial price or the upgrade. I understand the components cost that much, but as a consumer, it makes no sense to me whatsoever. Right, and if you're looking at the luxury watch market, 400 to $500 will get you a nice Swiss-made watch with an ETA movement. A really nice watch. What's crazy to me is that, so I looked a little bit at sales figures for smartwatches. Um, they're way down from what they were in Q4 of 2015 for sure. you know Q1. But compared to Q1 of last year, they're way up. They're over, I think it's three times the sales that they had in Q1 of 2015. So the trend is, you know, holiday season sales are always much higher. But the trend is people are buying more smartwatches. And it's weird because looking at tech news, and I, I read a lot, I haven't really heard any news about smartwatches that are coming up. Google's are developing some. That was one of them. I mean, I know they have Android Wear, and they no, no, have no. Like partners. in their Android Wear line, they're I either have have somebody making a new set of smartwatches that's about to be released on their store, or they're coming up with a Nexus line of smartwatches. Oh, so that would be interesting, but I still, um, unless there's some compelling reason for me to have this smartwatch, some extra features that are not currently in existence. Physical I, keyboard. Physical keyboard. <laughs> see, that's a perfect place where I'd say physical keyboards don't really make much sense. You see those like calculator watches. Oh, I, I had one. <laughs> I'm awesome. waiting for the rolling screen so that you can pull it out like uh, like those screens like That'd in cool. the uh, like when we want to like show an overhead, which just dates me at this point. But you pull out the screen and voila, you have the rest of your phone attached to your smartwatch. Oh, so you're saying like literally a pull-out screen because like over your forearm. That that's yeah. sort of like yeah, I guess that could be kind of I, cool. I'm but actually then you run I'm into subscribed to issues. something right. I'm subscribed to something right now called the Circuit Bracelet, and watching their development come along, they're almost I've at the goal. Yeah, and they it projects a screen onto your arm essentially. Yeah, I saw that. It, the concept is cool. I have no idea how they plan on managing battery life because any sort of projection takes a lot of power, and you. Just have physical requirements for smartphones. People know this, but it runs on your blood. Oh, <laughs> that's not terrifying <laughs> at all. It's powered by demon seed. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like Doom, right? It's powered by uh, what is that? Hell energy or something? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> MacGuffin number three. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. Uh, not just that, but I'm them. imagining the heat of the projector will also not be comfortable on your wrist. Yeah, I can imagine that uh, a warming up battery sitting on your on your wrist is not super duper comfortable. So that's the thing. Like that would be cool, but then you have the physical issue of the battery, right? So right. I don't see us getting to any point that it's particularly useful and practical anytime soon. Um, and it, it surprises me that sales are going up, and there's nothing particularly compelling about them right now. I'm waiting for one to get HIPAA licensed and have actual medication in them as a monitor. So that if anything ever goes wrong with you, you no longer need something like uh, like uh, like the EpiPens or whatever. The You just have an Epi watch and a smart watch that monitors your vitals. And if it suddenly detects that you're going to cardiac arrest or anaphylactic shock, it just injects you right from your wrist. So that would be awesome. But you're not going to see that as an Apple watch or a Google watch or anything like that. You're going to see it as, as a device produced by medical companies. Um, and it's going to be a medical product. It's not going to be a regular smart watch. Um, I'd be shocked shocked to see any retail company like apple or motorola or any of them come out with a smartwatch that well, has any sort we're gonna of we're going to see a lot of application. consumer stuff and i'm sure like the biosciences start converging in the not too far future i think and this is like my weirdo cyberpunk side seeing it but what we're seeing a lot of in consumers now like the fitbit like was just not a thing before suddenly like it became like one of the first smartwatches of that era Right. I mean, it, it became an exists. It's really right. an activity monitor. But. Right. It's an activity monitor. But at the same time, if you just added more function and uh, more features to the activity monitor, it becomes something completely different. Right. And so I will say that there is a market for activity monitors, and they make sense. I'm much more likely to buy a Fitbit than I am any sort of smartwatch. Oh, completely. Like every other, everyone or their mom here in the military has one just as a consequence of having a fitness standard. Right. And it makes sense. I mean, those things provide value that your phone doesn't. Whereas a smartwatch provides a crappy version of the exact same functions that your phone has. You, just you can't make it look like a pip boy. Yeah. <laughs> so 
Anyways, I, I guess I've ranted long enough about uh, smartwatches. So I want to talk a little bit about um, self-driving cars. You know, there were a couple Tesla accidents recently, um, one of them fatal. Pepcat. Uh, yeah, well, so that's <laughs> what they're trying to determine, right? Is they're saying that um, Tesla's autopilot feature was on. And, you know, Tesla has notification. It tells the driver, hey, this is a beta. Uh, you're the driver, make sure you're driving well. This is like a backup system, you know, and, and it does our, our best, but it's not perfect. It's still in development. Don't be an idiot, basically. And uh, Mercedes has a similar system. And the difference between the two is that Mercedes requires you to have your hands on the wheel in order for the system to even be active, which is like, you cannot rely on the system so much so that we will not allow you to rely on this system. This is kind of our generation's cruise control. Yeah, effectively, but like, people are misusing it. Right, yeah. like that one guy who decided to set cruise control in his RV and go back and make coffee. Well, he thought it was autopilot. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so so the question here is, and I've seen you know some web comics and articles online talking about the ethics of self-driving cars, right? Because most machines, and it's not artificial intelligence or whatever, you set a series of directives for the, for the car and, you know, based on certain guidelines, it will respond to those rules. The difference is that most machines are not life and death. Um, like I say, self-aware. Well, <laughs> self-aware. So, so what happens in a situation where the car, you know, based on the series of parameters, is guaranteed to end in a fatality for someone? You know, um, either the person in the car is going to die, or the person in another car is going to die, or a pedestrian is going to die. No matter what the car does, it doesn't have the stopping time or whatever. And, of course, this will be predicated on human error because if all of the cars are robots, they will ideally not be stupid enough to put themselves in such a dangerous situation. But uh, up until that point, you know, there's going to be that transition period of human drivers and autonomous drivers. What happens? You know, how do the you develop a system? with cyanide gas and immediately self-destructs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy to think, like, you might actually be killed by a machine at this point. And not like accidental, like, oh, I got my face stuck in some meat grinder type of situation. It's like a, a machine decided to kill someone. Terminator Welcome music going off in my head right now. Yeah. I mean, it's not purposeful. Ideally, it's doing its best to save lives. I mean, that's the, the whole point that's of the system. That's what they want you to think. That's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I the guess it's still a case of a, of a dumb machine trying to preserve life and and it is you know it's not artificial intelligence it's just uh, a highly advanced system of of rules that have been developed for for this machine but it's just sort of a, a weird and really creepy thing to think about if you're like what happened to your you know your cousin oh well he got killed by a car oh someone hit him no the car swerved into him like wh why well there was another pedestrian and the car's directive told it to you know, swerve right, and my cousin was there, and so he was literally killed by an autonomous car. That's terrifying if you think about it. I mean, that I guess it's will not worse than being killed by a person. Judgment, though, like imagine there's two pedestrians. You have to hit one of them. Which one do you hit? Right. So Whereas what happens with the car? Them, right? Someone's going to have to program that. I mean, think <laughs> about it, because otherwise you can't have a situation where the car does nothing. I mean, I guess you can, but then the car just crashes Breaks. into whatever. But yeah, brakes are always ideal. <laughs> My point is, if two people run onto the road, like, what's the car gonna do? Well, that point is their fault. It is their fault, but the car has to has to make some sort of decision. It can't what do if, nothing. What if the safest decision was to simply turn off autopilot as soon as it happened, so it wouldn't have to make the choice, <laughs> and now it's your fault? <laughs> well, and so that's in the case where we still have driver reliant systems, which is what we have now. But ideally, that you know, eventually would move to full autopilot, right? Uh, and so that's, that's the point that I'm talking about for now, anything that happens still the driver's fault, unless the autopilot system, you know, overrides well, driver what, control somehow. If we convert everything to full autopilot, what separates personal vehicles from public transport at that point? Cause it's essentially the same. Like I get on a train and I go somewhere and it's on a preset track to get to places. Yeah. It's a little silly. It's one of those scenarios where you already have a solution. And so instead of finding a better solution to the problem, you just keep over-engineering that solution. Like, instead of having these roads with thousands and millions of cars on them, why not just develop a highly, you know, integrated Efficient and broad network public of, of public transit? Um, and the answer is because that doesn't exist now, and we have roads, and people drive cars, and they like going that way, so 
let's develop super duper complex car driving systems instead of super super simple train systems just because that's what we have you know it's like um it reminds me of, of that saying that uh the Porsche 911 is the most German car in the world. It took an idea that was inherently flawed, which was the the rear engine design, and over-engineered it to the point of being supremely awesome despite its inherent flaw. And that's sort of where we're moving with car automation. Like, the simple solution is great public transit, and the stupidly complex version is... Let's create self-driving cars. Well, if you think about that, though, if we convert to full automation, the inside of a car will allow itself to become different. You no longer need the traditional like car setup. You could turn it into more like train cars or like airplane cabins. Oh, absolutely, especially with electric cars, right? Where you don't have the need for this huge drivetrain. You just have these shelves, effectively, where people and stuff sit inside. <laughs> it's going to be real ugly. I'm going to miss my car. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, look at my self-driving egg. <laughs> it's like a Steven Spielberg future. movie. <laughs> yeah, I hate it already. <laughs> All right, I'm okay with human deaths and errors <laughs> as long as I get to drive my freaking car. And it runs on gasoline, damn Gasoline. It. I want dead dinosaurs fueling my car. <laughs> what is this once nonsense? Once we run out of dead dinosaurs, we can burn furries. <laughs> as long as I'm killing something with my car, I'm happy about it. It's America, damn it. It's America. We gotta be killing things to power them. <laughs> Speaking of killing, I guess that'll wrap up the text section. Aww. Aww. Alright, Kilroy. Nice Michael shivs, Ryan. <laughs> uh, yeah, Kilroy. Firearms yep. section. All you. Oh boy. Yeah, so in light of the recent public outrage from yeah, people Go. who don't know Pokemon anything Go. about anything, um... I wanted to talk a little bit about the AR-15. And a lot of people are saying this is somehow, you know, America's greatest invention in the modern era that is somehow extremely deadly as well as some being extremely light and blah, 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 blah. Are we talking about cars again? Uh, maybe. And <laughs> on the other hand of that, we have a lot of people who are trying to make the AR-15 more accessible from the pro-gun side by calling it the modern sporting rifle. And at the same time, they're both wrong. There's like a pro-life versus pro-choice style debate where they're both wrong in different ways. <laughs> uh, not quite. So <laughs> going back on it, and uh, I've sort of bantered with you, I know, Ryan, uh, at least a little bit about this, about the history of the M16 slash the AR-15 platform. The AR-15 right. came first, and it doesn't actually stand for assault rifle. It stands for armaloid. Yeah. Getting that out of the way. Um, well, I looked at the dates, uh, fairly recently. The first run of Colt AR-15s available for sale are now considered curio and relics because they were made in 1963. So, for those of you that do not know, curio and relic refers to firearms that are over 50 years old, if I remember correctly. Yep. And they're basically considered collectible items. They're still subject to some firearms regulation, but it's a lot... Less strict because it's considered, it's over 50 years old, it's a collectible antique more than it is a deadly firearm, which is a little funny considering that AR-15s are now in that category. Right, which is, uh, well, to attack my own side first, the the nomer of modern sporting rifle is wrong. Let's touch on this one. The modern section, it was made in 1958. <laughs> That's pretty friggin' old. That's modern in art standards. No, that's, art, that's the Art Deco era. Oh, okay. I can't keep track of art stuff. I'm not an art history major. When was modern? I don't know. I don't want to jump into that. Go ahead. 1900, I think. Was it really that old? I have no idea. I took one art history class in college. In any case, AR-15s, while contemporary, have been around for a really long time. Yeah. And also, let's like qualifying it as a sporting rifle is kind of a misnomer like let's just kind of throw it out there guns are meant to kill stuff if guns didn't kill stuff i would be worried because they're not functioning correctly at that point well you can kill stuff for sport i mean they do that in iraq right well arabs have actually <laughs> have this really terrible habit of shooting up into the air to celebrate stuff but those are ak's okay it's for a different use the bullets have to land somewhere the bullets do have to land somewhere and a and lot of time it's on people <laughs> yeah and that's kind of why it's banned inside of the united states yeah Anyway, um, so like those two aside, that's that's 
sort of my side, quote unquote, of the argument, the pro-gun side, trying to like make ARs more accessible to people who only know about ARs from the movies. What you're saying is effectively the rifle was designed for combat, not purely sport. Although, you know, you can use it for hunting, you can use it for whatever. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, but the original pre- design was, hey, let's build a rifle that's used for combat for killing other humans. Right. The gun was made during the like you know the 60s uh, and in some of its mid-range developments as this crazy new space age gun that uses bakelite in all of its furniture and bakelite if for all of you who aren't old enough to remember that stuff or know about it is one of the first plastics and fiberglass as well was in some of the original designs right it was supposed to be like hey we don't need wood and steel when we've got these magic new space age lightweight materials which right. now seems super dated for for context <laughs> like old rifles before this particular era weighed about anywhere between 9 and 11 pounds right or more and the first AR15 about 6 pounds 5 if you're counting the one of the original iterations that had the super thin pencil barrel and th- that that's that for another time okay but yeah, basically a lot lighter a lot lighter and it changed from a full-size cartridge of 308, which is a 30 caliber, 0.30 of an inch across the diameter, right. to a 223 caliber, 0.223 across the back. Considered more of an intermediate cartridge. Right. And in this case, the U.S. military at first didn't actually want the AR because they said that the 223 wasn't deadly enough. <laughs> And they were worried about its effectiveness in uses in combat. And actually some of the complaints from some of the guys on the ground in Vietnam was that 223-556, the lows they were using, weren't getting through the underbrush properly. Right. I heard that a lot of uh, U.S. soldiers actually picked up um, the Vietnamese weapons that were shooting larger calibers and were using those. Although, I guess it caused some friendly fire incidents when... U.S. soldiers heard so the stories what go, sounded yeah. like enemy fire, you know, mm-hmm. and they shot in that direction. Yeah. Although, and... if the story's to be believed, the 223 didn't get through the underbrush, so those people were perfectly safe. <laughs> <laughs> Unless they still had the M14. Oh, well, then, then you're screwed. Yeah. yeah. Which is kind of funny, because the M14 and its various iterations, such as the Springfield M1A, it currently has no legislation against it. Well, not to mention, it's still in military use. I mean, this is a design that... That was, you know, I think it started with the M1 Garand. Yep. That was the earliest iteration of it. It morphed into the M14, and now we still use it in the form of the M21, you know, which they use as a DMR or a a sniper rifle. I think the Marines use it. uh, It's around. It's around. And, yeah, so that really just kind of throws out the entire other side of the argument as far as deadliness and all that stuff goes. And, sure. It's just the fact that the AR, since, I don't know, maybe Call of Duty 4, you want to call it that, in modern public viewing, has received more public attention. And at the same time, the gun industry, since the the Second Iraq War, has developed quite heavily on the AR platform to try and improve the M4 because they were finding a lot of faults in it for A, not being deadly enough, and B, not being modular enough. Right. Yeah, so it's sort of this hand-in-hand thing of, you get increased public visibility both from media and also because, uh, you know, gun manufacturers are doing extra development work on this platform that's standardized for the U.S. military. What you get is a lot of bleed into the civilian market, you know, because improvements on the military or civilian side tend to go, you know, they feed each other in that respect. Mm-hmm. And that's not specific to guns, by the way. That's any sort of technology. Right. Um, and a lot of what we see in the military actually comes from the high-end competition circles that have come being coming up with, like, let's put carbon fiber on our handguards and things like that. Right. And so you see this sort of, like, you know, increased development means increased advertising, increased ownership, increased visibility, along with media coverage of, of military events. And, you know, we see modern warfare video games and any sort of war movies. So you're just saying the Air 15 over and over and over, and it's become, like, the de facto gun for hey that's a military rifle you know what else is a military rifle there are literally hundreds of them but this is the one we know about and never mind there's civilian version that functions in a different fashion it looks the same that that looks pretty dangerous to me yeah and a lot of the culture that we've raised from this generation and like seeing it here in the military with people who actually are in the military and know absolutely nothing about guns 
which is the vast majority of the people in the military. Kind of sad to say. Um, they come in thinking this and that, and you actually have to get them out there and show them how some, how this stuff works. And show them what kind of damage you can do and how to like, respect the damn thing. Right. And in that case, what's missing out uh, from a theoretical level for most of our society is, thank God nobody actually has to be in a situation where they're forced to do violence unto others. Because the experience of doing so and the experience of seeing at least firsthand what the, you know a rifle bullet can do to even like a uh, gusseted chicken gives you a little more respect on what it is. Right. But it'd be good to see not just the AR, but, you know, any, any platform. Um, yeah. I think Vox recently did a survey on guns that Americans thought should be banned. So they just gave them the names and the pictures yep. of the firearms and, you know, had people decide, should this one be banned? Yes or no. Should this one be banned? Yes or no. And I forget exactly which ones, but it was like the Uzi was the most, you know, selected for banning. And yeah. the Uzi was like the poster child of the Brady campaign in the 90s. <laughs> yeah, which is funny because really they're not that good and not that many people have them. Nope. Uh, and no one has them in full auto. So barely but... anybody anyway. Yeah. and they're Not since the Reagan items. administration. Right. Um, so it was just funny to see how people, they didn't really consider the function of the weapon. They just considered the aesthetic of it. And again, you know, if they've seen it in an eighties action movie, you know, it's bad. Mm -hmm. But uh, one thing I want to touch on that that you sort of mentioned is these people are going into the military with no knowledge of the firearm. They really have to be taught it. But, um, even then I I think the vast majority of people in the military, they have basic familiarity with the rifle platform, but no. I mean, they're not enthusiasts. It's sort of, and, and I came up with this analogy before, asking the average person in the military for firearms advice is like asking a taxi cab driver for car advice. You know, just because he's in a car all day and he has to drive for his job, it doesn't mean that he's an expert on cars. I mean, he might be. He might be a car enthusiast who also drives cars for a living and he has the advice that you need, just like any member of the military. Yep. But just because they have a rifle for their job doesn't mean they're rifle, you know, gun enthusiasts and they know anything about it. Um, yeah. the, the exception would be, you know, special forces, because that's more like asking a race car driver for and car advice. And chances are then, they know their deal. Well, even then, like I'm doing a lot of talking with the Navy SEAL that's in my class. He barely knows shit about guns. He just says, I used a SCAR Heavy, it's in 308, and I d- didn't know the difference between EOTech and an Aimpoint. I, well, I guess if you're a race car driver, you don't have to know different car models. You just have to know how to race the one that you've got. But, the, but I think on average, the typical right. you know, special forces person is going to have more firearms knowledge than the average. They'll have more firearms military. usage experience. That that's, too. That's kind of the thing. Like the race car driver will drive more under heavier, more intense conditions, but he may not know a whole lot outside of his own car. Right. And well, there's a Green Beret down the hall I can ask. Or start talking to. <laughs> um, but so far, anyway, uh, from what I'm seeing, like shooting and being operationally efficient with your firearm really only accounts for maybe like 20% of like the whole soldiering thing. Right. Well, and it's, I, I get the feeling that, you know, and I'm, I'm not an expert on the military, most of what you're taught is going to be, or most situations that you're going to end up in are suppressing fire, call in support, you know? There's a lot of that, yeah. <laughs> that's kind of what's what i expect right. um but yeah so as far as ar-15 development i mean that's a platform that's evolved and changed it's just been around for a long time yeah and it, 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 it has the benefits of, age. Account of yeah it's you know and i've said it to other people before uh, another car analogy coming in um the ar-15 is like the corolla of firearms as far as rifles go, but even that is not accurate enough because it does not fully convey the ubiquity of the AR-15 platform and it doesn't address at all the modularity of the AR-15 platform. Hmm. You know, it's almost like saying uh, it's the car of the firearms world and everything else is like a variation of that, you know? Other guns are basically buses and motorcycles, but cars are just AR-15 because it's such a it covers such a wide I... variety I wouldn't put it towards that, but I would say that the platform as it is now is open enough, like, just to take away the metaphor here, because I don't think a good one could be come up with right now. That's fair. It's just, it's, 
ubiquitous and it's modular enough that people have been tweaking and toying and doing whatever they want with it. And at the same time, you have another platform. Let's uh, draw something slightly parallel to this, the 1911. That's also been around for forever, and there's a million different versions of it in various forms and fashions. That's true, although there's not as much customizability on the 1911 platform. Well, there's single versus double stack 1911s. Like, of course, like if you argue with the purists, none of those are 1911s. <laughs> different yeah. calibers, different, uh, you know, different shroud or and dust covers, bull barrels, various other things such as that. Yeah, you can get different stippling, and you can get, you know, all the the. What are they called? The the lines? I'm blanking on the term. On the, the slide. Serrations? Uh, thank you. Slide serrations. That's <laughs> what I was looking for. Yeah, and those are partially cosmetic as well as uh, practical. But, yeah. So, the other thing uh, that we touched on it, and like what I said before about how a pretty large amount of soldiering, while it does depend on you being a fucking good shot, doesn't actually require you to fire your weapon. <laughs> like a lot of it was just like you know know how to ruck know how to do this know how to do that but in your personal training like know how to clean stuff yeah that too like the one thing I'll take away from what an infantry drill sergeant told me was that the US Army infantry are professional janitors <laughs> anyway uh, so how much gear do you really need as a private civilian to like go and do your own training so well, I mean it, let me let me try and and narrow your question down is gear as far as like what are you prepping for you're talking about going to the range every so often you're talking about home defense you're talking about concealed carry or you're talking about there's a revolution better get your gear ready to fight type of situation so that's a lot of it's going to be on you i prefer having something at the very least if you're going to go buy one thing buy something that'll cover as many bases as you can get and normally, for me, that recommendation would be, A, first get a handgun if you're in an urban environment, get a rifle if you're not, and then okay. move on from there, and then get the other thing. So rifle and handgun are the first two things I recommend interchangeably between wherever you're living. And a lot of the country guys that I've met here, they already have a rifle. They don't give a shit. <laughs> well, what kind of I mean, it depends what type of rifle you're talking about. You know, you're talking about like a Remington 700, like a bolt-action rifle, or you're talking, you know, that- AR-15. That, again, is also dependent on your situation and depending on what caliber you want to be shooting. But this is sort of a philosophy that kind of extends past, like, the minutia of that sort of thing and saying that the importance lies more in you being able to practice. Like, the rule that I've seen uh, bandied, bandied about is spend eight times more on ammo than you did your gun and then you'll actually be able to do something with it. <laughs> So what you're telling me is that I need a cheap gun and then I don't have to practice as much. (laughs) (laughs) If I spend $3,000 on my rifle, I need to spend a lot more time practicing than if I buy the $600 rifle. Got it. Buy the cheapest AR-15 I possibly can. Well, to a certain extent, if you can get your cheap-ass AR-15 to function well enough, or as well, or maybe better if you're a better shot with it, than a highly tuned $3,000 AR, well... Good on you, you're really good at shooting. And shooting another $3,000 AR will come super easy. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the answer is always training is better than equipment, right? I mean, they say that for... I honestly can't think of a situation where they don't say that. They say that for video gaming, they say that for driving, they say that for shooting. We lose that, though, for the Forest for the Trees, because a lot of people come in and say, well, what's the best gun for this? Like, there is no real best gun, go buy one and start using it. (laughs) Right, it's... The one that's best is the one that you're best with. You yes. know, the most the most practiced with. Right. You want a 50 cal? You want a 50 cal? <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is going back to, uh, I think it was my first podcast. I suggested the Barrett is the best yeah. gun for all uses. Exactly. That sounds and practical. Second to that, of course, is the best gun is the one that you have. <laughs> that's true. But <laughs> My best gun is not a gun. I don't have a gun. So you have an, a knife. Your best gun is a knife. My fist. Your fist? That's a terrible gun. I call my left fist sudden, my right fist death. You know, usually <laughs> guns refer to your biceps, right? No, but my fists are the tools of destruction. Well, that's not what we said. We said The biceps guns. are the bullets. The fists are the guns. That's an interesting interpretation. So you shoot your biceps through the fists? Exactly. That's weird. I don't I, think that's I, how I, muscles I, You work. want to see a doctor about that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't shoot guns much. <laughs> 
Anyway, uh, but you all can. that aside, uh, you remember back in college, Ryan and I discussed a uh, thing that we called our one gun philosophy, where a lot of newbies will come in. I mean, us, like us, are prime. We were prime examples of that, where we'd come in and suddenly want to buy like eight million different guns. And and I think we did we purchase like a total of like I think we're close to thirty in total on our purchases. Yeah, between us, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but we didn't get good at shooting for the longest time. We were I'm like, still not good at it. Yeah, you're terrible at it. I don't know how. <laughs> yeah, well, I know how. I usually go months at a time without practice. And then you shoot shapes. <laughs> and every shapes. time I have to start over. It's right, like you shoot shapes and you don't time. do any dry firing. Yeah, I have a, a nasty flinch. It's not good. Bullets are scary. Well, yeah, <laughs> I guess. But it takes, you know, after two range sessions, if I go twice in a week, I'm like, you know, my, my curve is massive because I start getting back some of the practice I had before, but... Uh, with long, long gaps, I really suck. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's that's really the thing. Our normal recommendation for people who have just gotten into guns is to, like, buy one thing from each category of the tactical triad, throwing back to the previous podcast, and stop. Stop. Buy ammo. Go practice. Right. Don't buy more guns. Don't do what I did, because now I have an AK, an AR, and pieces... Your AR, I guess, is is intact, though. And uh, I just bought an M1A. So I now have three platforms. I'm pretty mediocre And all your at. different handguns. And all my different handguns. And I'm really not that good with anything. <laughs> I have a lot of things that I can shoot poorly. Right. <laughs> so, all right. So getting back to your point of if you had to choose one gun... Is, is this a question of what it would be? Because I, I feel like this is a bit of a throwback to our first podcast. And my that, answer was That Barrett. wasn't the question. You misinterpreted what I wanted to say in this section. Okay, Never go listen. for it. Okay. <laughs> go for it. Well, no. I was just saying the one gun philosophy is to buy the one gun and practice with it until you run the damn thing into the ground. Oh, that wasn't a question. That wasn't a question. Okay, like how, that's how much gear? How much gear you really need is... The answer is not that much. Oh, it was a rhetorical question. Right. Just one gun eight times the ammo, the cost of the gun. Yeah, so that and Kilroy's recommendation: buy the cheapest gun. Got it. <laughs> yeah, and have better friends. Apparently, better friends, friends that shoot, that ones that don't just buy guns. <laughs> but again, that's one of those philosophical things that becomes a legitimate issue. Because you'll yeah. have people who aren't interested in getting better at shooting; they just like the act of shooting and have enough money to throw at a big, big, big collection. Yeah, well, and some people are, it's not even about the shooting. They're just gun collectors. You know, they're like stamp collectors, except with more guns. Intense. Yeah. <laughs> way scarier and way more money. <laughs> and they probably don't live in California. Unless you're Charlton Heston. Yeah, but California is a miserable place to be a gun collector. Yeah. Uh, one quick thing about the rifles. It's really funny to me, by the way. I mentioned the I have an AR, I have the AK, and I will have an M1A. And the most deadly weapon of the three is the only one that is not threatened by current legislation in this state. The M1A is head and shoulders deadlier than either my AK or my AR-15. And it is 100% legal in not threatened in any way by any existing or upcoming California legislation. Whereas both my AR and AK are likely to be registered assault weapons. Soon well, enough. aside from the fact that you're limited to a 10-round mag, but that's not a problem you can't overcome. Well, first of all, there's that. And second of all, 10 rounds is pretty standard for the M1A, so I don't feel like I'm hamstrung on the platform at the very least. It's mm, fair. You know, putting a 10-round mag in an AR, you're like, what's the point of a freaking AR? Right. The whole reason I have it is so that I can have 30 rounds. I have these smaller rounds so I can fit more of them. It's lighter so I can carry more of them. Mm-hmm. But if I'm shooting 308, I don't care. I'm putting giant holes in things. No, oh, you're putting 308 size holes. I can hit them. Yeah. <laughs> if I can hit them. I would hope I'm accurate with a 308 rifle. If, I, if I'm if i not, I'm, uh, I'm pretty much a failure as a gun owner. Well, you've got a retired Marine who can probably teach you how to use a sling. That's true. If I get a sling, I guess I should get a sling. Maybe. We'll see what happens. Well, it's not going to be a tactical sling like the ones that you've seen already. It's going to be one of the cold classic slings that I've been insisting we should learn how to use. What's that? Get a one-point tactical sling and just use that? Got it. <laughs> anyway, I mean, I think that does about it. that's about it for me on this end. 
All right. So to, to summarize, buy one gun or two guns or three guns all in different categories and just practice. Practice, 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 unless you're a gun collector, in which case it doesn't matter. And I hope you're very rich because guns are expensive. Yeah. And practice correctly. That, that's going to be the caveat to that. Practice well. Good practice makes good habits. Yeah. Agreed. Don't practice your flinch. It's not good. Yeah. Good. Anyways, uh, as I guess, often as possible. <laughs> I guess we'll call it for uh, episode four of Not a Podcast, the Not Operator Podcast, and uh, we'll see you next time. Good night. Good night. Good luck. <laughs>